0: Um, open up your Bibles to Daniel Daniel chapter 11. The lesson is entitled Historical Warfare. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. We come to you, Father, this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we approach you in his name because we acknowledge that it is only through his worthiness that any of us do have access to to your presence and your throne room. We thank you that through his death upon the cross for our sins we have been forgiven and saved from your judgment, and that we have been saved for eternal blessings that I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things you have prepared for us. Father, we pray that our study of the book of Daniel has furthered our appreciation of our Lord, and as we come to this final Revelation, we ask for your blessing upon each of us here to be able to understand that which you have revealed to us in this epilogue of the final revelation given to Daniel. We pray, Father, that in these days in which we live, we will each have a sense of the great importance of seeking first your kingdom and of putting the Lord Jesus and service to him in the preeminent place in our lives that we know that we may know the full, abundant life that you have for us, and so that our lives might be properly invested for all of eternity. Now I pray that as your word is taught and as it ministers to us, that it will be in the energy and power of the Holy Spirit, and that it may be, even though this is a complicated message, that it may be a blessing for each one of us. For I ask these things in the blessed name of our Savior, our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's really coming down, isn't it? (laughs) okay I'll try to speak up well after having given Daniel a picture that might be too loud a picture of the cooperative protective workings of the holy angelic forces which Daniel probably had never heard about before told him about the heavenly warfare and then after having strengthened the poor old guy three times Because he actually passed out after seeing a vision of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, which would probably cause any of us to pass out, right? After doing that, Gabriel then began to unfold to Daniel God's revelation given in response to his prayer. Remember, he had gone on his knees fasting and praying for three weeks before he finally got the answer. And that's because, of course, Gabriel had been delayed up there in the heavens by the prince of Persia. We talked about all that. This lesson is so long, I'm not going to do a lot of review. So if you weren't here, get the CD. Well, that prophetic revelation to Daniel told of the continued sufferings of his people, the Jewish people, all the way through the tribulation period. He thought they were just, you know, about at the end of their sufferings in Babylon because they had been freed to return to the land. And now he's finding out, no, 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 because they didn't repent. They were going to be suffering all the way through actually till the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So verses 2 to 35 contain prophecies that from our place in history, as I told you in the introduction, have already been fulfilled. 135 prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Then there is an unspecified gap of time. Between verse thirty-five, the end of verse thirty-five, and the rest of the chapter, verses thirty-six to forty-five. We live in that gap of time, which isn't called the church age. Then the last part of the chapter from thirty-six to forty-five is all about prophecies yet to be fulfilled concerning the Antichrist and the period of time known as the Great Tribulation. We have more information in those verses about the last three and a half years of the tribulation than anywhere so far in the whole book of Daniel. Now, as I said in our last lesson, this final revelation takes up three chapters. Chapters 10, 11, and 12. We've already looked at chapter 10, which was the prelude to this final vision, I call it. But really, he had a vision, but it's really a whole series of revelations. That was the the prelude. And now, as we come to chapter 11, which I'm going to have to do in two parts, Um, we're going to look at the actual prophecies of this final revelation. And as we look at those prophecies, we're going to do so in three parts. Today, in this lesson, we're going to look at a parade. We're going to look at a parade. I know, yay! (laughs) It's not going to be a very good parade. It's a parade of fighting kings. Fighting kings whose reigns directly... Affected the nation of Israel. It's all about Israel. Israel's always at the center of everything. Okay, there were kings in other parts of the world during these years that were fighting each other in China and in South America and everywhere but the ones that w- that the Bible focuses on are the ones that were fighting we- with each other that affected the the land of Israel. So we're going to look at a parade of fighting kings and that parade of now historically past kings contained Persian kings. They were at the front forefront of the parade because Babylon is over with by chapter 11, right? That kingdom is past. We've moved on to the Medo-Persian Um, empire. So we're going to look at the beginning of the parade are the Persian kings, then following them are Greek kings, and then Seleucid and Ptolemaic kings, which are divisions of the Greek kingdom. And then ending up this parade is that vile person, Antiochus Epiphanes, who we've talked about before. So that's the parade we're going to look at this morning. And I have a ringing I think it's a little too loud. There's a ringing. Let's begin by looking at the um, the Persian kings, and that's in verse two. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because you would really be dizzy if I did that. You wouldn't understand any of it. So I'm going to go verse by verse. Read the verse and then explain it. Okay? That'll help you. Let's look at verse two because we already discussed verse one last time. Gabriel speaking to Daniel says, "And now will I show thee the truth? That's good to know, right?" Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. Okay, this prediction to Daniel is that three kings would follow the reign of Cyrus. Now remember, Cyrus already is king at the time of this revelation. So following Cyrus, there would be three more Persian kings before there would then be a fourth king who would be richer than all of his predecessors. And that fourth king would put his confidence in his riches to build up his military. And the reason he wanted to build up his military strength was so that he could invade the territory of the Greek city-states in an attempt to conquer them. Now, this was fulfilled exactly as prophesied, because following Cyrus, there were three kings. The first one was his son Cambyses. The second one was a man named Guamata, who had no right to the throne. He was an imposter, but he pretended to be Cyrus's youngest son smurtis how he got away with that maybe he looked like him i don't know but smurtis had been murdered this guy pretended he was smurtis so they called him pseudo smurtis <laughs> which reminds me of the smurfs for some reason you're all thinking that aren't you <laughs> and he only lasted one year and he was assassinated oh the joy to be a king right he was assassinated by Darius the Great, this guy liked to call himself the Great. A lot of these guys like to call themselves great. They all have ego problems. He was of royal blood because his father, Hystospes, was actually a cousin of Cyrus. He murdered the false smurf <laughs> and then, and then he attempted to conquer. They all have their eyes on Greece, you know. These are the Persians, and they, they're eyeing Greece. So he has his eyes on the Greek city of Athens, and uh, he tries to conquer it because this, the reason is because the Greeks had revolted against their Persian overlords. They didn't like being under Persia, Medo-Persia, you know, the bear. And so they, they revolted. And Darius goes against them, but he fails because his naval campaign was defeated by the Greeks. The Greeks were known for their warships. The Greeks are known for ships because there's so much water around them. And that actually is my maiden name means little ship. So I guess my ancestors were shipbuilders or something. Anyway, so he lost. Darius lost at the Battle of Marathon against the Greeks. Well, the fourth king was King Xerxes with a big X, also known in the scripture as Ahasuerus. Yes, he was the Ahasuerus who married a beautiful Jewish girl, not knowing initially that she was Jewish and her name was Esther. Exactly. He was that. He's the fourth king mentioned here. If you want to put next to verse 2, Ahasuerus, Esther's husband, do that if you don't mind writing in your Bible because next time you'll remember that. He did have tremendous wealth as Gabriel had predicted there in verse 2. He was far richer than they all. Why? Well, because he inherited all the wealth of Cyrus and Cambyses and Darius because everywhere those guys went conquering, they would plunder temples and they just... uh, Accumulated vast wealth, which Xerxes inherited. And he did use that wealth to build up a tremendous army with the goal, just like verse 2 says, of invading Greece. He wanted to try to avenge his father's defeat. And so he, he actually was successful in subduing most of Greece, except when it came to the Navy situation again, and he lost, because his Navy was not able to defeat the United Greek fleet of warships, and he lost, at the just like his dad, he lost at the Battle of Salamis, and he had to retreat back to Asia Minor. Now, even though the Greeks won both of their battles against the Medo-Persians, they never forgot... Persia's aggression against them however it took them 150 years before they finally had a king great enough to unite them in one empire because before this the Greeks are a bunch of city-states feuding little city-states with a great navy okay Um, but now finally under 50 years they get this king who unites them and uh His name is, who wants to guess? Alexander the Great. We've talked about him before, but he's the one now mentioned. If you want to write in your Bibles, he's the one mentioned in verses 3 and 4. So let's look at those two verses. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity nor according to his dominion which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. So Daniel learns of the rise of a mighty king who would rule with great dominion and do according to his will. But when he stands up, when he's at the apex of his whole career, what happens? He's broken. He's broken. We know he dies, and then his kingdom is divided into four subsections or dynasties but none of his successors would ever know the dominion and the absolute authority that he had known all of this all all of this points to the fact that this and everybody agrees that this is indeed speaking of alexander the great the first king of the greek empire now we have discussed on more than one occasion His history, so let's just really quickly review. He had that quick rise to power, his swift conquest of some 14,000 miles of territory all the way from Greece to India, and then when he was at his apex, where did he die? At an early age, 33 years of age, he died in Babylon, of all places, and uh, probably choked on his own vomit or something. He had a fever, and he got sick, and he drank too much, and he died. Anyway, and then his once-united kingdom was divided between four of his generals. took about 20 years for them to figure all that out, but finally four arose. And uh, and we've talked about all this. The one thing to remember is that when Daniel received this prophecy, Greece was not even on the world stage as a nation. Like I said, she was just a bunch of little city-states much less an empire, you know, that would take over the whole known world. So this is all yet future. You know, Daniel, as he's hearing all this, he doesn't, he's not going to get it. History has shown us what all of this means. But is, that is amazing. You have to remember, this is, this is all future from when Daniel heard it. Well, no sooner had Alexander conquered everything. He was broken. And it says he left behind no posterity. You know what that means? None of his descendants or even a relative took over his kingdom. He had a half-brother, Philip, who was mentally deficient. He had a son, Alexander Jr., who was born after he died. And then he had an illegitimate son named Hercules. Good Greek name, right? (laughs) And uh, all of them were murdered. All of them were murdered. And that's why it says his kingdom was plucked up by, by four of his generals, none of whom ever did know the power that Alexander had known. Well, the prophecies next of verses 5 all the way to verse 20 deal with over 150 years of prophetic history regarding two, just two, of the four divisions of the Greek empire, they're going to hone in on the Ptolemies, which starts with a P, but the P is silent, the Ptolemies of Egypt and the Seleucids of Syria, the first General who became king of each of those. The first guy was Ptolemy and the other guy was Seleucid. So they're called the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And they're going to be collectively referred to as the king of the north and the king of the south because all directions in the Bible are given in relation to what nation? Israel. So collectively, all the Ptolemies are going to be called the king of the south because Egypt is south of Israel, all the Seleucids are going to be referred to collectively as the king of the north because that area of Syria is north of Israel. Why did God just hone in on these two of the four divisions of the Greek empire? Because these two had repeated and direct effect on the nation of Israel. The other two did not. But these two did, and the reason, if you can think in your mind of a map of the Middle East, is because Syria, north of Israel, and Egypt, south of Israel, when they're warring against each other, which they did, <laughs> what land is affected? The land that's between the two of them, Israel. And so a lot of their battles actually take place on the soil of Israel. So that's why God focuses on these two, the king of the north, the king of the south. All right, um, and that's called the Glorious Land. Israel, if you look at verse 16, is called the, the Glorious Land. All right, let's look now at the Seleucid and Ptolemaic kings. We're marching right through this parade, or this, mar- this parade is marching right by us. We've already looked at all the Persian kings. We looked at the Greek king, and now we're going to narrow it down to the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic kings. And here's where it really gets fun, fun okay? All right, let's look first of all at verse 5. And the king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him. That means that one of the princes of the king of the south is actually going to be stronger than the king. And have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. All right, the strong king of this verse, the king of the south, was that general, the first Ptolemaic general. His name was Ptolemy I. Soter, S-O-T-E-R, which in Greek means savior. This guy had an ego problem too. He saw himself as the savior, didn't he? He was a general who had served under Alexander. Actually, he was one of his good friends. And eventually he was given authority over Egypt. He was an Egyptian, but he gained authority over Egypt. He was the first of 11 Greek rulers over Egypt. The last one of the 11 Greek rulers over Egypt was a woman. Anyone want to guess what her name was? Who? Yes, very good girls. Cleopatra. She was not, no matter how much eyeliner she wore, she was not Egyptian. Did you know that? She was Greek. The Ptolemies were the rulers of Egypt, but they were all Macedonian. They were Greek, which is interesting. Cleopatra was actually the only ruler, Ptolemaic ruler, who even learned the Egyptian language and tried to understand the Egyptian people. And um, and they liked her. Of course, you know, she wound up committing suicide, etc. But it's interesting, the Ptolemies were able to maintain their Greekness, because they intermarried with one another. They didn't marry Egyptians, they intermarried each other, and it was really very incestuous. A lot of them, a big percentage of them that were kings, we're going to be talking about all the Ptolemies, et cetera, married their own sisters, or their uncle, the uncle would marry the niece. But that's how they uniquely stayed Greek, Greek rulers over Egypt. All right, that's not in here, but that was free. All right, when, she, when Cleopatra, the last Ptolemaic ruler, when she committed suicide, then Rome annexed Egypt. Anyway, verse 5 says that one of his, meaning Ptolemy I, one of his princes would be strong above him and have a more extended dominion than him. Well, history has revealed to us that this was a prophetic revelation to Seleucus the first. The first, the general Seleucus who became the king over the area of Syria. Well, actually Babylon initially, he became the king of Babylon, but another general named Antigonus the first, he was another former general of Alexander. He was called the one eyed. <laughs> I guess he only had one eye. Um, he decided to try to take Babylon away from Seleucus. Seleucus was afraid of him. So he ran down to Egypt and kind of sought safety with Ptolemy. So he actually became one of Ptolemy's princes. You get it? It actually literally came true because he was subservient to Ptolemy the first. Then the two former generals, Seleucus I and Ptolemy I, decided to join together to try to defeat Antigonus, the one-eyed. And they did. With their joint forces, they were able to defeat him. And um, Seleucus went back to Babylon, retook it, became the king again, and then his, his territory spread to Media and Syria, So what happened is he actually became stronger than Ptolemy of Egypt. And that didn't set well with Ptolemy I of Egypt. You know, this guy had run to him for help, and now he winds up having more territory than he does. And so they became rivals. And they fought with one another, and their successors, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, fought with one another for years and years to come. And their wars were known as the Syrian Wars. And I thought about what's going on today. Still have a Syrian war, don't we? Nothing much changes. Well, after Ptolemy's death, his son, Ptolemy the Second, Philadelphus, which is a Greek word. These are all Greeks, so I know what their names mean. His name, Philadelphus, means lover of brother and sister. He loved his brothers and sisters <laughs> too much, I think. Um, but he, he succeeded his father, the first general and decided that it was enough, you know, all this fighting going on enough is enough. So he wants to make an alliance with the Seleucids so they can stop fighting. And he's going to do this through a marriage agreement. That was a common practice in ancient times to bring peace between two warring kingdoms. So let's look at this marriage agreement in verse six. It says, and in the end of years, they shall join themselves together for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of the arm. Now, the power of the arm speaks of her father who made the arrangement. He's not going to be around. Something happens to him. Neither shall he stand nor his arm. He's the one-armed king. You no, know, it sounds like it was... <laughs> One odd king, one arm. You no, know, it sounds like he loses his arm, but that means he loses his power. <laughs> but she shall be given up. That means she's going to be divorced. And they that brought her are going to be killed. And he that begat her, killed. And he that strengthened her, killed in these times. Actually, she's killed too. So really, this is all so soap opera here. Okay, so it's agreed that Antiochus II, Theos. Now, that guy names himself God. All right, he is the third successor to the Seleucid dynasty. It's agreed that he is going to marry a woman named Berenice. She is Ptolemy II's daughter. She would bring great wealth to Antiochus, and then when she bore him a son, it was agreed that the son would jointly rule both kingdoms the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, and they wouldn't have to war with one another anymore. Sounds like a good arrangement, right? Problem is um, Antiochus II had a problem, slight problem. He was already married, and he was married to a very wealthy and powerful, influential woman named Laodicea. Ever hear that name before? You know what that name means in Greek? The people speak. Literally, the people rule. That was her name. And she does speak out. (laughs) Um, So he has a problem because he's married to this woman. But nonetheless, he does divorce her. And he declares publicly that her two sons born by him are illegitimate, that she had them with some other man. Well, that doesn't set too well with a woman, especially a powerful, influential woman. That was a big mistake. Well, a couple years later, Berenice, who's his new wife, um, she does bear him a son, but the problem is her father, who made the marriage arrangement, dies. He lost his arm. (laughs) She lost the power of his arm. And so what does Antiochus do? He puts her away, just as it says. He divorces her, and (laughs) he remarries Laodicea. Not very smart thing to do after you have spurned the woman. Okay, so she immediately organizes a very successful plan of revenge. She had Berenice and her little son and all of her attendants murdered, poisoned to death. Then, mysteriously, her husband also dies. Nobody knows how. (laughs) And she claims the throne for her son, her oldest son, Seleucus II, Callinicus. Except he's too small to take the throne. So guess who reigns as queen regent until he's of age? Laodicea. All right. Now, all this literal history was precisely fulfilled, just as predicted in Daniel 11, 6. Look about, Look at it. The, the agreement was between the king of the south, the king of the north. It entailed one giving his daughter to the other, but the daughter would not retain the power of the arm because she, uh, he would die. She would be given up when he died. Also, those who supported her would all be abandoned. They would abandon her or they would be killed. Isn't it amazingly accurate? I mean, hundreds of years in advance of all this. Well, let's look at verse 7, what it says, 7 and 8. But out of a branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army. This actually is her brother, comes with an army. Um, and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against them, and shall prevail. Prevail. And shall also carry captives into Egypt their gods with their princes and with their precious vessels of silver and of gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. All right. Verse 7 tells us that a branch of her roots, that's the uh, Berenice's roots, um, is going to stand up with an army to deal with the king of the north and, and what he did with his sister. This actually turns out to be Berenice's uh, brother, Ptolemy III, who, when he heard what Antiochus had done to his sister, collected an, a large army and he was going to go down, rescue her, and then take vengeance. The only problem is, by the time he got there, she had already been poisoned to death along with his little nephew. He's furious. But he does continue to get his revenge. He's able to take from the Seleucids all of Asia Minor, from Mount Taurus to India. And then he returned back to Egypt with immense wealth, as it says in verse 8, precious vessels of silver and gold. He brings back with him to Egypt. Um, their gods and their princes. And actually the Hebrew word there for princes doesn't speak of people. It speaks of molten images. Now, so what he does is he comes back after he defeats the Seleucids, he comes back to Egypt. He's not Egyptian. He's Greek. But he comes back to Egypt carrying all their gods and idols back to them. Those idols and gods had been robbed from Um, years before by Cambyses, Cyrus's oldest son. When he invaded Egypt, he took all their gods and goddesses and all their valuables. So when this guy comes back with them, he is hailed by the Egyptians as a hero. They really love this guy for bringing them all back, and they call him um, the benefactor. Verse 8 says that he would then continue longer more years than the king of the, the north and he did in fact that's true he lived about five years longer than the king of the north who was Callinicus, the son of laodicea Callinicus died by falling off of a horse onto his head just an interesting that wasn't predicted and yeah a little tidbit there all right let's look at verse 10 9 and 10. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return into his own land. But his sons, plural, shall be stirred up. There's a lot of st- stirring up if you go through this chapter. And, well, a lot of stirring up. And who is, do you think, stirring them up? Yeah, all the evil forces. You know, there's a lot of ego, a lot of evil. Anyway, it's interesting. That's one of your homework questions. Go through and see all the influences you can from the demonic realm. His son shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces and one. Now, that means it's narrowed down to one son. One shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Guess what he's overflowing and passing through? What land? Israel. Israel is implied there. He's going to pass through Israel. And then shall he return and be stirred up, there again, even to his fortress. All right. Interestingly, these prophecies, you know, I told Terry yesterday that I always wondered why God was silent during the 400 years between the end of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. Those are called the intertestamental years. There are books called the Apocrypha, but we Protestants do not believe they were divinely inspired. Um, But they do give us a lot of good history about those 400 years. But why did God never speak during those 400 years to at least one prophet or, you know, tell anybody anything? And then I got to thinking as I'm studying Daniel chapter 11, the reason he didn't is because he already had. He had spoken to Daniel in chapter 11. You know what chapter 11 is all about? The intertestamental period, all this stuff, all this history we're going over is exactly what happened in those 400 years. So if you think about it from the Garden of Eden to the eternal state, God never, he didn't, he didn't skip any period that he didn't tell us about. He, te- he tells us about everything in the scripture. Isn't that, isn't that just like God? <laughs> just like God. All right. So Callinicus was succeeded. You know, he's a guy who fell off the horse. His mom was Laodicea. He falls off the horse, dies. He's succeeded by two sons. They were stirred up, those sons, to make war against Egypt. Egypt had conquered them and stolen all their gods, etc. And so they assembled, the two boys assembled together a great multitude of forces to be able to go against Egypt. However, one of the sons was assassinated and didn't get to go against Egypt. But the other one kept on going and overflowing and passing through Israel in order to wage war with the king of the south, the Ptolemies of Egypt. That surviving son was Antiochus III, who decided to call himself Antiochus the Great. He's the daddy, well, not really. Never mind. With Anti- He is a daddy, but... <laughs> with Antiochus III at his border with 75,000 soldiers, the king of the south, who is now Ptolemy the Fourth Philopater, you know what that means? Lover of his daddy, pater, in Greek, is father. So uh, one loved his brothers and sisters, this one loved his daddy, all right? He became very angry when the king of the... Uh, South is at his border. And so he's moved with collar. Let's look at that. That's in verse 11. Verse 11. And the king of the south shall be moved with collar. There you go. Anger. (laughs) And shall come forth and fight with him, the king of the north. Even the king of the north. And he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. All right. So the two are going to fight one another. And actually, where they met to fight was on the land of Israel. This is called the Battle of Raffia. Now, one guy has, what did I tell you? He's got um, 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 103 African war elephants. Hmm. You see, what they would do is they would teach teach the elephants to charge and to frighten the enemy. Now, that would be very successful, right? 103. Three African elephants charging at you. Do you think of your soldier, you just stand your ground? (laughs) No, it was very successful. Um, The problem is that the other king also had war elephants. (laughs) He had Indian war elephants. So this is not only a, a war against the king of the north and the king of the south, but it's a war against African elephants against Indian elephants, but can't you imagine the ground shaking as all that, he had a hundred elephants, the other one had a hundred, and they're charging at each other. This battle, it was a real battle. It took place, as I told you, um, in Israel. It's called the Battle of Raphia, and it took place on June twenty second, two thousand seventeen BC. The result was a complete victory for the Ptolemies of Egypt. Antiochus lost virtually his entire army and he retreated back to Antioch of Asia Minor that's why so many of them are called Antiochus because Antioch was the capital of the Seleucid Empire and they named their boys after Antioch well so the prophecy of verse 11 was fulfilled in that a Syrian multitude was given into Philopater's hands and Israel was now controlled by Egypt now she's under the dominion of Egypt and when she was under her dominion, she enjoyed, Israel enjoyed a relative period of peace and prosperity. In fact, much of Egypt's business affairs were entrusted to the Jews. You see, the Egyptians recognized the Jews' good ab- ability to, with numbers. And so um, they entrusted business affairs to them. And thousands of Jews moved to the Egyptian city of Alexandria at this time. That's why there's still a lot of Jews in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, And they became rather wealthy merchants there. However, this peace, and this reminds me of Joseph when he was in Egypt. The peace only lasted as long as uh, that Ptolemy Philopater remained alive. Same thing with Joseph, right? The Pharaoh that knew him, uh, things went well for the Jewish people as long as he was alive. And then there came a new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Well, the next Ptolemy, to take the throne, didn't care about the Jews, and um, Josephus tells us that he actually gathered a lot of the Jewish people into the town center of Alexandria, stripped them naked, and then had his elephants made drunk and turned them on the Jews. Captive Jews naked turned the elephants to charge and kill the Jews. Only thing is, that those elephants did not like being drunk and they turned instead on their Egyptian handlers and the Egyptians, not the Jews, were killed that day. Who do you think was winning the warfare up there? Michael. (laughs) I love that story. That's a a true story. All right, uh, verses 12 and 13. And when he had taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up and he shall cast down many ten thousands, but he shall not be strengthened by it. For the king of the north shall return and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. Well, with the defeat of the enemy forces of Antiochus III and his Indian elephants, Philopater, the one who was good to the Jews, he's, now he's still alive in this account, um, After he won against Antiochus, he got lifted up with pride, unfortunately. It says his heart was lifted up. And he didn't bother to pursue Antiochus. He did kill many of Antiochus' soldiers who were left behind, but Antiochus himself got away. And um, this this Philopater, Ptolemy Philopater, made a mistake. He should have pursued him. But he was in his ego thinking, I don't need to bother. I'll never see him again. That was a big mistake. Because 15 years later, guess who comes back? Antiochus, again, with an even greater army and probably more elephants than he had the first time. That's what it says in verse 13. After certain years, he's going to return with a multitude greater than the former. Thing is, by this time, Philopater... The good guy, except that he got his heart lifted up, <laughs> had died. He and his queen, who was his sister, had died by this time. And they left behind a four-year-old son whose name was, imagine this, Ptolemy V. They're real original. Ptolemy V Epiphanes to rule Egypt. Well, Antiochus up there in Syria knows it's a good time to attack Egypt because it's ruled by a four-year-old. So good time to attack. Um, general Scopus of Egypt was taking over uh, for that young king. He was he was the military general. His name was Scopus. Well, the many it says there in verse fourteen. Did I read that? No. Let me read fourteen. And in those times there shall many stand up against the king of the south. Also the robbers of thy people. Remember who Gabriel is speaking to? Daniel. So who's thy people? the Jews. Also the robbers of the Jews shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. All right, <clears throat> this means that the many, there were many, who did join Antiochus in his return trip to fight Egypt. <clears throat> many included Philip the Fifth of Macedon and the robbers of Daniel's people. That speaks of some Jews okay there were politically zealous Jews who favored Antiochus they thought that if they helped him defeat the Egyptians that in return as a reward he would give them their independence the truth however of what happened is found in the words look at the end of verse 14 but they will fall down he did not give them their independence. Instead, Israel now came under the oppression of the Seleucid dynasty instead of the Egyptian dynasty. They're under the Seleucids, which doesn't prove to be very good for them when Antiochus IV comes along. So Antiochus pushes, you know, he's coming against this four-year-old and this general who's in charge. He comes all the way to Gaza, and it falls in 201 B.C., scopus the general is unable to resist this invasion verse 15 says that he cannot he and his chosen people which means his best um his best troops they're not able to stand their ground because it says they have no strength to withstand then it says that antiochus um attacks the most fenced city, he casts up a mount. All of this is speaking about the fact that General Scopus retreated to, to um, Sidon of Phoenicia, which was a very fortress city, and Antiochus had to put a mount up. It means he sieged against it for a whole year. But finally he broke through, and Egypt had to surrender to Antiochus of the Seleucid dynasty, Uh, General Scopus had to to, um, concede the victory to the Egyptians, and that was in 198 B.C. That's like 200 years before Christ. Well, verse 16 says, did I read that? No, let's read that. But he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him. That's speaking of Antiochus III. And he shall stand in the glorious land, of course, that's Israel, which by his hand shall be consumed. Alright, this tells us that once Antiochus III, who had originally been defeated, you know, his his elephants, and he had originally been defeated this second time around against Egypt, he is victorious over Egypt, and now he does as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him, so he establishes himself not only in Egypt, but in Israel, the glorious land, and he has the power to consume her, which means to destroy her, however, God is still in control, and it isn't time for Israel to be desecrated or destroyed. So this man, Antiochus III, did not pursue a policy of destruction against Israel once he took possession of her. In fact, what might have changed his mind is that when he marched into Jerusalem, he was largely welcomed as a deliverer and a benefactor, and the Jewish people became his allies. Israel was never again to this day, under the dominion of the Ptolemies of Egypt. From here on, you know, it was the Seleucids, and then it became, of course, the Romans. Well, verse 17, let's look at that one. "He He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him, thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women. Okay, here's another marriage arrangement corrupting her, but she shall not stand on his side, neither before him. This is interesting. The angel predicted to Daniel that Antiochus would set his face to strengthen his power and maintain his hold over Egypt. He's finally gotten Egypt. He doesn't want to lose it. So in order to maintain his power, he's going to give his daughter in marriage to the young king of Egypt. Remember how old he was? He was only four. (laughs) Uh, So they make a a marriage agreement when they're both young, and his intention is that he is going to use his daughter, he's going to corrupt her, he's going to use her as a spy in the Egyptian court so that she could inform him if she heard of any revolutionary actions going on or being plotted against her father. That was his plan. Put her there, and he's going to corrupt her. And he also, of course, wanted her to raise her children to be pro-Syrian instead of pro-Egyptian. Guess what her name was? Cleopatra the First. Now the famous one was Cleopatra the Seventh. This is the first Cleopatra, and she is somehow or another a great. Grandmother of some sort of the other Cleopatra. Her name is Cleopatra the First. Syra. She was just a child when she was betrothed to the um, to Ptolemy the Fifth. Who, when they when they made this arrangement, he was actually twelve. I mean, you know, not four anymore. He's twelve. <laughs> Old age of twelve. Well, the, this marriage spy plan of Antiochus the Great failed because guess what happened? His daughter actually fell in love with her husband. Imagine that. <laughs> she fell in love with her young um, Egyptian. He wasn't Egyptian. He was Ptolemaic, but he was king over Egypt. She fell in love with him. And so she always took her husband's side in issues and not her daddy's side. And that's exactly what it says. She would not stand on his side, neither would she be for him. Well, at this point, with your heads really spinning, right? I mean, are you going to remember any of this a week from now? I'm not. I'm not I, I'll remember some of the high points, but I'm not going to remember all this stuff. But you, it's all oh, this and more is in the lesson. Oh, yeah, the lesson goes on for pages. <laughs> but all of this minutia of history, and it is fascinating. When I get into it, I get just all wrapped up. I think, wow, this is so neat. I mean, it's, it's terrible, really. It's awful. History is awful. And we never learn from history, do we? Because it just keeps repeating itself. But you might ask yourself, why did God include all this seemingly insignificant stuff? I mean, it's insignificant to us. It isn't going to affect my life today. Is it going to affect your life today? No. So why did he include this in the eternal word of God? You know, the word of God that goes on forever and ever. We have all these marriage arrangements and murders and everything in the world. Why did he do that? Well, it's because he wants to show us and prove to us, It says this is true, that he does indeed know history ahead of time. In fact, he knows every little detail of history ahead of a time, doesn't he? You know, he doesn't just hit the nail right on the head every once in a while. He hits 100, well, 135 nails on the head just in these verses. He hits them right on the head and they're all in order chronological order, it's that one, that one, that one, that one. He's trying to show to us, prove to us, that um, he is the divine author of this book, this book, Daniel, that has been criticized more than any other book, perhaps in Genesis, of all the scripture, he's showing, no, I'm the author of this book. I'm the only one who's omniscient and omnipotent enough to foretell the future and then fulfill my foretelling of it he not only told the future, but then he orchestrated events so that everything he had foretold was fulfilled. Only God can do that, right? Not some forgery second century Daniel. So he's giving us all the confidence we need to know that he is the author not only of Daniel, but he's the author of the whole book, right? All 66 books. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. I have no idea what time it is, but okay. Oh, we're doing great. after this shall he turn his face unto the isles and shall take many, but a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. Aren't you glad you have me to tell you what that means? (laughs) Whew, I don't even know what that means. Then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Okay, once Antiochus the Great, had conquered Egypt and Israel, and actually much of the Middle East at that time, he determined that he was going to, he set his face, he looks at the isles. What's that mean? He focuses on the Mediterranean and the islands in the Mediterranean. And he decides that he's going to go after the coastlands of Greece and the islands like Rhodes you know, he's just not content. Isn't it amazing that no ruler, no matter how much they gain, they always want more. They're never content. They just have to get more and more power. So he has his eyes fixed on Greece. Now, Greece at this time, many years have passed now, Greece is under the dominance of Rome. Rome is beginning to flex her muscles. She's becoming a power worthy of notice on the, scene of the, wor- on the stage of the world. Now, however, although he did initially experience success, capturing many, it says, a prince, which is literally a commander, puts an end to Antiochus the Great's aggression. Now, as I said, that aggression was very unwise because Rome was a factor to be reckoned with. And that commander or that prince who puts a stop to Antiochus' aggression was named Lucius Cornelius Scipio. (laughs) Scipio and Scopus and Smurf and all these guys. Well, he successfully compelled Antiochus to surrender and to sign an agreement from the Roman Senate that said he would give up all claims to Egypt. Oh, no. It had taken him two invasions to gain Egypt, a marriage arrangement to try to gain and maintain Egypt, and here he has to give up all claims to Egypt. Not only that, but he had to give up a great part of Asia Minor, and he had to surrender his entire elephant brigade. That was probably the biggest blow. And his navy and 20 select hostages. He was forced also to sign an agreement to pay an indemnity to Rome of 20,000 talents within a few years. Now that is a lot of money that he would have to pay Rome. So this was a bad day for Antiochus III, wasn't it? He should have taken away the name The Great. (laughs) and he took disgraceful refuge back in Antioch. Well, you know, that man would have gone down as being great. He would have been um, one of the great conquerors of ancient times if he would have left Greece alone, right? It's true. But power-hungry rulers never seem to know when to quit. Because of this, that he fulfilled the prophecy regarding himself in verse 19 where it says, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. He was unable to pay Rome even part of that large amount of talents. He was supposed to pay them a certain amount each year. Well, he didn't have the money to do that. He'd been robbed of everything, even his elephants. He couldn't even sell his elephants, right, because they took his elephants. So what he decided to do was rob a uh, temple to Baal in Elemas. Well, the local citizens weren't too happy about that, and they were so enraged that they murdered him. So he stumbled and fell and was not to be found. And that's sad, sad end to that poor guy. Well, I don't really have any sympathy for him. (laughs) He was going to use his own daughter. Hmm. All right, verse 20, then shall stand up in his estate, meaning in his place, a raiser of taxes, uh uh-oh, in the glory of the kingdom. But within few days, he shall be destroyed neither in anger nor in battle. All right, so Gabriel goes on to speak of the successor to the fallen Antiochus III, the king of the north, and his successor was Seleucus IV, Philopater, Ah, another guy who loved his daddy. He was the eldest son of Antiochus, so his boy loved his daddy. He oppressed his subjects by raising taxes. That's what it says, and this guy really did. He laid heavy taxes on not only his own people, but also the Jews. They are called the glory there, which literally means the jewel of his kingdom. From God's perspective, who was the jewel of the kingdom of the Seleucids? Israel. He calls it the glory. So he even lays heavy taxes on the Jewish people, everybody he can get money from, in order to pay Rome that indemnity money. Now, 2 Maccabees chapter 3, that's one of those intertestamental books that gives us a lot of history. It tells us that a traitorous Jew named Simon... Told Seleucus, you know, he's looking for money. How am I going to get money to pay Rome? Well, Simon the Jew tells this king that the temple in Jerusalem has a lot of wealth in it, a lot of gold and a lot of silver, and it's enough treasure to meet the king's needs. And, of course, he he needed the money. So he sends his chief tax collector, a man by the name of Heliodorus, to go to Jerusalem to rob from the temple in Jerusalem. And we have this whole story. I give you this story in the end of your lesson, which you should get maybe this afternoon, um, taken directly from 2 Maccabees. It tells us that Heliodorus goes to the temple. He gets right outside of Jerusalem and has this horrific horrifying vision of a person an angelic looking person on a horse with flanked by two lightning face beings on either side of the horse and they attack heliodorus those with him run flee from him they attack him and flog him in his vision so much so that he faints, passes out, has to be carried away in a stretcher. Now, whether or not that account is true, and there are, you can Google Heliodorus. He was a true figure. There are paintings, famous paintings of him, uh, being, you know, with this scene, etc. But I don't know if it's true, but here is something I do know that's true. He went all the way <clears throat> from Antioch of Syria down to Jerusalem, to plunder the temple, didn't even go into Jerusalem, turned around, and went back empty-handed. So something happened, right? Something happened, definitely. Um, Also, did you notice it says that the the king, Seleucus, uh, within a few days would be destroyed? That's in verse 20. Well, right after he sent Heliodorus to rob the Jerusalem temple, he mysteriously disappeared within a few days, just like the scripture says. And he didn't die um, in anger or in battle. Now, those were honorable ways to die for those kings. If you're an angry at somebody, you know, or if you're in a battle, he, he, he just died mysteriously. Some think he was poisoned. But guess who took his throne? His tax collector, Heliodorus. <laughs> oh, you couldn't make this up if you wanted to, Right. So now the stage is completely set for all of the atrocities and the persecutions that the Jewish people would uh, suffer under the reign of the next Seleucid king, the next king of the north. And he is the one we have talked about so much. Why is so much of the scripture, especially in Daniel, dedicated to this man, Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes? Why? Because he serves as such a perfect type of the coming antichrist so let's look at him quickly verses 21 to 32 it's interesting that this guy called himself actually his f- full title was theos antiochus Epiphanes. which what does that mean here i am folks god manifest fest antiochus god manifest i am god in the flesh which is exactly what the Antichrist is going to do, right? going to pretend to be a false Christ. But it's interesting what God, how God sees people different from how they see themselves. Look at how God sees him. Verse 21, And in his estate shall stand up what? A vile person. That's how God sees Antiochus, a despicable, vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, meaning he had no right to be the king, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom. How? By flatteries. It wasn't his to inherit. Um, it actually went to Seleucus's son Demetrius, who was a prisoner in Rome. Now, he should have been the rightful heir. And then there was another infant son who should have been after Demetrius. Demetrius couldn't take the throne because he was a prisoner. But the little infant son could have would have been the next heir. But Antiochus the fourth said, Oh, I love him so much. I'll be his guardian. And he said, I'll raise him up, you know. What do you think he did to the little boy? Killed him and took and stole the throne. So he didn't you know, he took it, it didn't belong to him. Which is exactly what we find out the Antichrist is gonna do. And how are they gonna do it? By their charismatic personnel you know, they pretend they come in peace. And then they, they flatter. It's, it's just all so much similar to what the Antichrist will be like. All right, verse 22. And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. All right, this is, that's talking about, it's in your notes, but that's talking about how he will actually hate the Jews. He'll turn on the prince of the covenant, who speak, that speaks of the rightful high priest of Israel, His name was Onias III. He was a godly high priest. But Antiochus took him out of the high priesthood and gave the position to a man named Jason because Jason paid him a bribe to have the position. It's the first time there was ever a false high priest. And he corresponds to the false prophet of the end times, doesn't he? Well, Jason was the high priest for a while, but then a higher bidder came along named Menelaus, and he gave more money to Antiochus. So Antiochus removed Jason and put Menelaus on, the, not the throne, but made him the high priest. So there was actually two false high priests. Anyway, that's what that verse is talking about. Let's look at verse 23. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully. For he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. Remember, he's also the little horn back in chapter 7 who waxes exceeding great. At first he's little, but then he becomes great. That's exactly what this is saying. How does he become great? By deceptions and flatteries and lies, all that. He shall enter peaceably even upon the fattest places of the province, and he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches, yea, he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. He's kind of like, uh, or he was, kind of like a Robin Hood. What it says here, he would go into the richest places of the province, of of his domain, he would rob from the richest places, and then he would, instead of doing what his fathers had done, which was to keep that money for himself and to build up his military, etc. he would distribute what he had robbed to other people to get them to do his bidding. And then when they were doing what he wanted them to do and when they thought he was his their friend, he would turn on them and rob from them to pay other people. He was really a deceptive snake in the ground, wasn't he? Uh, So that's what that is saying. And it says he planned all this ahead of time. It says he forecast his devices. It was all plotted out ahead of time. Verse 25, and he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, that's the Egyptians, with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. This is saying that Antiochus the 4th, they always have their eyes on each other, so he now wants to get Egypt again. And so he goes down to wage war against Egypt with a you know, great army. And the king of the south, Egypt, comes to battle against him. But the king of the south, the Egyptian king, who is a Ptolemaic king, um, is deceived by his own people. It says, they shall forecast devices against him. Who? His own counselors. Look at verse 26. Yea, that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down. His own counselors betrayed the Egyptian king, and the reason they betrayed him is because Antiochus had gotten to them and bribed them to do just that. So Antiochus basically wins over the, the Egyptian king, but he doesn't kill him. And then the two men, the king of the south, the king of the north, get together at a table to make a little agreement with one another. And that's what we find in verse 27. And both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table but it shall not prosper for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. It always says the time appointed because God is orchestrating all this. So he's going to give these guys a little bit of time. Here's what they do. They come to the table, the the bargaining table together, and they're both sitting there. Can't you picture them lying to each other, promising this and promising that, and they're both doing mischief. You know, what they're promising is, you know, they're going to renege on it they're going to break their promises and they're doing everything so that they can prosper each of them individually but god says neither one of them will prosper in the end but that goes on today right all these agreements you know they're lying they're lying in their teeth so as i said nothing new under the sun i'm way lost my place but what what verse was i on 28 28 then shall he return into his land with great riches okay this is antiochus epiphanes he uh, has his little he wins over Egypt and then he takes a lot of money from her and he goes back to his land up in the north. But as he's going back, it says his heart shall be against the Holy Covenant. Who is that? The people of the Holy Covenant has to go back through Israel and his heart is against them and he shall do exploits. That's not good. And return to his own land. What happened is that on his way back, after he had his little lying table session with the king of the south, he goes back home, but on his way, he passes through Israel, and he sets his heart against the holy people of the covenant because he hates them. Why does he hate the Jews? He hates them because he was so obsessed with Hellenization. Remember, I ta- we talked about this. He wanted to make everybody speak the Greek language. He wanted to make everybody worship the Greek gods, his gods. He wanted everybody to, you know... Um, compete in the naked in their athletic events and just take on all the Greek customs. And the one people who absolutely refused to do that, the one stubborn, stiff-necked people who would not do that were the Jews, right? And he hated these people and their stubbornness and their one-God religion. So he thought, well, I'm just going to do some mischief to them on my way home. And so he killed a bunch of Jews just for the fun of it. I've lost my place to tell you how many, but a lot of Jewish people. Um, He marched against the city and sacked Jerusalem, but he did return at that time. See, the end of verse 28, it says he returned to his own land. But let's look at verse 29. I'll go all the way through 32. At the time appointed, again, God is sovereignly controlling this, he shall return, and he did in 168 B.C., and come toward the south. He's going back to Egypt. What happened is he had heard that the king he had lied to, the Ptolemaic king he had lied to at the bargaining table had also lied to him. Imagine that. And he, he um, reconciled with his brother, the two Egyptian Ptolemies, and decided that they were going to come and fight Antiochus and get back what they lost. Okay. He gets wind of this, so he does return. He goes back to fight the Egyptians, and, um, and it says uh, that he'll come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former. Or as the latter, why not? For the ships of Kittim shall come against him. Now the ships of Kittim, if it's C-H, it's pronounced K, it's a Chaldean thing. Anyway, that speaks of Rome. Rome comes against him. Therefore he, Antiochus the fourth epiphany, shall be grieved and return and have indignation. He's furious. That means he's foaming at the mouth with anger against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them and forsake the holy covenant And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate, and such as do wickedly against the covenant, that, speaking of betraying Jews, shall be corrupt by flatteries. All right, I've read the whole thing. Now let's go back and quickly talk about what happened. At the appointed time, he would return to fight um, the Egyptians. But he only gets as far as the city of Alexandria before he is met by a Roman council named Popilius Linnaeus. Do you remember him? Remember we talked about him. He was sent from Rome to stop Antiochus in his tracks. Don't you dare go against Egypt. He's the man, now you'll remember him, who drew the circle in the sand and said to Antiochus, By the time I leave this circle, you decide whether you're going to leave, turn around, go back home, or you're going to stand your ground, fight the Egyptians, and in fighting the Egyptians, guess who else you'll be at war with? Rome. Well, at this point, Rome is really pretty powerful, so Antiochus has no choice, and he has to um, agree to to sign a covenant, I mean an agreement that says he will never invade Egypt again. So in his humiliating retreat back home, tail tucked between his legs, who does he take out his indignation on? Israel, of course. Now there's several reasons for this besides the fact that he hated the Jews because they refused most of them, the godly ones refused to be Hellenized. One reason is that when he was in Alexandria, there was a rumor spread that he had been killed. So the Jews, when they heard that Antiochus Epiphanes was dead, they had a celebration. They were very happy about that. And he heard that they were happy that he died. And this reminds me, too, of the Antichrist, because the whole world is going to think he's dead, too. Doesn't he have a fatal wound to the head and then resurrects of some sort from the dead? Well, they thought Antiochus IV was dead, and he sort of resurrects from the dead. Also, he heard that Jason, remember he's the one who bribed for the high priest position um, and then was replaced by Menelaus. Well, he heard that when Jason heard he was dead, he attacked Menelaus, put him in a prison, and he became high priest again. Well, Antiochus took that as being rebellion against his authority, so he was going to get rever- revenge against Jason. So he has a number of reasons, plus he's mad, losing to the Romans and not getting Egypt, so he's just furious. So he comes, into, he comes right outside of Jerusalem, but again he uses his peaceful tactics, and he sends forth his general, Apollonius, into the city with a contingent of 22,000 soldiers. But they say to the Jews, we're coming in peace. We mean no harm. We're coming in peace. Guess what day they decided to enter the city? A Sabbath day, wisely, because they knew the Jews, with their strict Sabbath rules, would not fight back. So once they gain the city peacefully, what do you think Eponielus and his 22,000 soldiers do? Immediately, they began to um, plunder and kill. And 80,000 men, women, and children were slaughtered. And 40,000 more were made either slaves or prisoners, sold into slavery or made prisoners. It was then, and we know all about this, that Antiochus came, went to the temple, and uttered unbelievably blasphemous things against everything holy <clears throat> and then took away all the gold and silver vessels of the temple including the table of showbread the golden altar the golden menorah he even went down into the subterranean vaults beneath the temple where he collected 1800 talents more of gold and silver then he tore up the copies of the scripture that wasn't enough he also burned them what did he offer on the altar a pig And he then forced the priests to swallow pig meat, which was unclean to them, or be killed. Many of them were killed. And then he placed a statue of Zeus right there in the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the pig juice all over the inside of the holy place. It was what? The abomination that maketh desolate, just like it predicted there in verse 31. And Jesus predicted that this would happen again by the Antichrist in the, in the Olivet Discourse. Well, verse 32 concludes, the first part of it concludes by telling us that there would be Jewish people who would do wickedly against the covenant um, because Antiochus would um, use flatteries and trick them. Sadly, this was true. There were many Jews who went along with his Hellenization program and even participated in the worship of Zeus. So this turned out to be an even more dangerous threat to Israel's survival than the tyrannical measures of the Syrian king, if you think about that. Because if more Jews turned toward Hellenization, what would happen to the Jewish people? They go away. And and it was precisely this kind of large-scale betrayal of her covenant responsibilities to God that had resulted in her destruction by Nebuchadnezzar and had resulted in her 70 years spent in captivity in Babylon. So this was dangerous. Praise the Lord that it was the abomination of the temple and the forced spread of idolatry that went throughout, you know, he sent his soldiers throughout the whole land of Israel to offer pigs on altars everywhere, in every little town and village, <clears throat> and force the priests to swallow and the people to worship, you know, Zeus, etc. It was all of that that precipitated the Maccabean revolt, which was a good thing a really good thing, and it is yet another extended series of prophecies that were given by God through Gabriel to Daniel in chapter 11, verses 32 to 35, and that's where we're going to pick up our lesson next time, okay, two weeks from today. So we made it through 32 verses, yay! (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for fulfilled prophecy and and for the test that the Bible actually puts on itself to prove whether it is divinely inspired or not, we thank you that over hundreds of centuries of history in, given to us in this chapter, not one prophecy has proven to be false, that every one that has already been fulfilled has been fulfilled so very precisely that it does indeed give us confidence and assurance to know we can trust everything else in your book. This is, I know, definitely been a study that has demanded concentration. I know that there's no way we're going to remember or that we even need to remember all the names and all the details and all the dates, et cetera, that we've heard about today. But I do pray that each of us will leave here with the overwhelming reality in our minds of the fact that you do control history down to the very specific detail. May we each know that since your word is trustworthy and true about prophecies in the physical realm, it is also trustworthy and true in the spiritual realm. May we know that as you tell us in this book, there are only two alternatives for life after death, an eternal hell of separation from you, Father, or eternal heaven where we can spend forevermore in your holy presence and with our Savior. Thank you for the grace that allows us the free will to make the right choice and for the privilege we have to help others also make the right choice. I know as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, the one who has made our salvation possible. Now may this time we've spent together truly have been for your glory, for we do pray in Jesus' name, amen.